You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? (laughs) You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. What's going on, you theologically minded listeners? Thank you guys for joining us on this week's episode of Distilling Theology. I'm your co-host, Blake Courtright, joined as always by... My baptistic bro chacho, Justin Van Riper. How you doing, bro? Hey, man. How's it going? <laughs> you know, it is uh, it is um, Wednesday, my dudes. <laughs> as we're recording this. I yeah. I, I'm I'm doing well, man. It's um it's been a week, but the week uh is halfway over. <laughs> and so we're we're on the uh, home stretch. And um I'm doing well. I'm grateful. I am I am incredibly grateful. I am uh, feeling very humble, been very humbled um, these last couple of days. So, yeah, it's been it's been good. How about you, man? How uh, how are you doing? All right, it's been a week, similarly, but you know what? Uh, God is good, and despite all the wildness and craziness going on in the world, which all I'll all I'll say about that at this moment is our prayers are with the people of Ukraine and especially with our brothers and sisters in Christ, um, both in Ukraine and in Russia. Those who are uh, that's right who are shining the gospel light uh, in the midst of global conflict. So that's all I'm going to add to that. But uh, yeah, it's been, it's been wild, but uh, <laughs> it's good. It's good to be here with you now uh, to sit down Indeed. and, uh, and sip our scotch. We kind of came to this in, in, uh, I guess this is the, the whiskey planning version of um, drawing lots. Um, Cause we basically had no idea of what we were going to sip tonight until right before we sipped it. We took lessons from the Reformed Brotherhood yeah. in, uh, in that way. Uh, yep. No shade. That's just something they both point out on a regular basis that they do no planning. And, and we usually do some, some measure of planning. Not today. Not today. So you're, <laughs> you are, uh, you're in for a wild ride. Um, yeah. But on that note, Justin, what's in our glass tonight? Yeah, I'm very excited. We are going to be sipping our first on the show, Lafroig. We're going to do the cat. Oh, yes. We're doing the 10-year cask strength uh, batch 009, which is, of course, distilled and bottled in Scotland at the Laphroaig Distillery on the Isle of Isla. It's been aged 10 years. What what you got? Oh, this uh, particular bottle. I've had this for a while. This was bottled uh, in 2017. And since it's Mm 10-year-old scotch, just do the math backwards, it was put in the barrel uh, in 2007. At that rate, uh, which is kind of wild to think about because now we're here in 2022 and this liquid um, was distilled and put into an oak barrel to sit for 10 years back in 2007. Um, this is before yeah. uh, Obama was president, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of a wild thing just contextually. And I, and I like to remember that when we're sipping some of these spirits, like obviously the liquid is there's nothing you know magical about that in and of itself, but it's just interesting to think about how much has transpired in the time that this was in the barrel and then in the time that it sat uh, in the bottle until we're sipping it now. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I I was reading uh, just before uh, we started recording some of the etymology of the actual word 
Lafroy, which was interesting. Um, uh, there's not a specific um, actual history as far as anybody can tell, but the common um, the common suggested etymology of the word uh, is that it includes elements of the word log in Gaelic, which means hol- which means hollow, in in breed in Norse, which means broad, as well as vik in Norse, which means bay, which is implying that the original Gaelic form is something like log brohaig, which would be the hollow of broad bay. Um, and then they suggest that it may also be related to a, a place name on the east coast of Isla called Praig, uh, again suggested as meaning broad bay. Um, I'm sure I'm I'm sure I'm pronouncing them wrong, but um, that's what that's what made. we're here. You know, yeah. we're here to butcher some <laughs> quotes, bro. <laughs> what kind of cut would you like today? Uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm really excited. What you got on the bottle there? So uh, those of you guys on Patreon, you can see it's the classic Lefroy bottle. Um, or at least the the tin that it comes in, uh, but it has this nice little red label that says original cask strength and has the batch number the year it was bottled. Uh, the distillery established 1815, and it tells us it is bottled at 58.1% alcohol by volume or 116.2 proof. So we're talking high octane stuff. It's a um, strong boy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's heavy duty, dude. And uh, yeah. I'm pretty excited to get into this because it's been it's been a minute since i've since i've tried it to be honest um and i used to joke that i I posted on my facebook years ago i said this is what your bartender drinks um back when i was working at the speakeasy so uh it's definitely it's a pretty cool thing Uh, it's non-chill filtered which big fan of that like just let the whiskey be what it is uh and don't try to don't try to change it too much and again we've we've had that conversation back and forth and back and forth uh and Eric's given us a lot of good insight into that. And our boy Andrew in DT has some good opinions. But at the end of the day, does it taste good? Yes. Do I like to know the purity of the whiskey? Also, yes. So, uh, also, yes. <laughs> what do you get on the nose so far, dude? Well, let's take a sniff. Yeah. It has sat in the glass uh, for at least about 10 minutes. And that's the general, at least, myth rule of thumb i don't know if it's an actual rule of thumb but you know we stick by it here yeah i think uh, i think eric corrected us on that one you know what a year in the glass for every minute in the cask because <laughs> that was a verbal typo from early on in the podcast i said that somewhere and we just both yeah. lost it uh no but the, the the thing being a minute in the glass for every year that it sat in the cask is the myth and, and apparently yeah, eric busted that bubble one time he was oh like, man yeah, it smells, smells really good, good. okay it smells really good. It's definitely got a lot of peat smoke um, right out of the gate. That's going to be very <laughs> apparent. Um, but the more you smell, I'm getting vanilla, citrus. Um, so for me, gosh. this is a, this is a more charcoaly smoke than I'm used to from Lafroig. Um, the regular ten year and some of the other like Cardias expressions and, and small batch releases I've had from them. Um, at least off the nose initially, it tends to be more of a barbecue uh, smoke. And this has a much stronger charcoal note out of the front anyways. Yeah. It's not unpleasant. Like yeah. we've talked about how we like tar and asphalt on this podcast. So, you know. Yeah, I'm almost getting like salted butter. See, as soon as you said it. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Power of suggestion, people. Yeah, it's a very distinct um, scent. Like I, I, I'm fully expecting it to taste a certain way. Um, 
just based on how powerful it is. Yeah, there's a little bit of nuttiness in there too, like toasted nuts. Mm -hmm. Well, shall we taste it? <laughs> yes, please. All right. Cheers. Oh, that hits like a ton of bricks in all the right ways. Bro. Oh, oh, it's sweet. Ooh. Tell me, tell me, tell me if you can feel it. Cantaloupe. Maybe a little, but I feel like I'm you're getting, making... no, I'm getting some cantaloupe. I'm getting some, some, some lemon, definitely some oak, uh, more of that salted butter. The smoke is a lot less strong on this, on the palate as it is. Uh, on the nose, at least for me. Oh yeah, I was gonna say that's not my experience at all. I took a sip and it yeah. was like liquid smoke entered my mouth. Granted, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get that at all. Oh, that's wild. Not as extreme as when I had um, Octomore with James LaBelle back on Forty Three. I think that was crazy. Mm. But this is pretty intense still. Let's go back for for sip number two. That's got a very long warming. Um, yeah, it's very finish. sweet, very long. It lingers this kind of smoky, smoky sweet balance on the. On the end there. Yeah, that's good, man. Wow. Oh, that is <laughs> that's tremendous. It it's strong, but like it's not abusive, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. No, I've I've had a few spirits that were either just so high proof or things that were so intense in the smoke or something else that it was like mm -hmm. you needed to tap out for a little while um now they do have this note here which you and i both kind of scoffed at a little but there's a there, there is something to this maybe not to the extreme sure. that they have here on the bottle but they say we recommend that you add twice as much water as whiskey to fully appreciate the taste characteristics of the original cask strength lafroig whiskey at cask strength may overpower the palate but adding water will release a rich aroma of peat smoke with some sweetness. That's a lot of water, though. And strong hits. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. What we pour two ounces. What am I supposed to pour four ounces of water? Listen, just fill the whole Glen Karen. <laughs> that's nuts, dude. <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind of overwhelming. It's like all of those wishy-washy Christian worship songs that have to do with water and fire, like all of them. Well, right, right. Just that—that's the trick, right? Throwing the word passion, throwing the word desire, because it rhymes with fire. <laughs> there's a great sketch about that that i won't uh i won't go into at this moment uh but before we get into our topic tonight justin would you lead us in prayer from the valley of vision absolutely it's gonna say speaking of speaking of sweet and smoky mm. all right <laughs> all right y'all uh if you have a valley of vision which again we continually highly recommend that you do uh turn to page 322 we're going to be reading service and equipment. Not like, not like what your janitor has in the closet, not that kind of equipment. Like, like being equipped. <laughs> so anyway, uh, turn page 322, service and equipment. Um, if you would, pray with us. Thou God, 
of my end. Thou hast given me a fixed disposition to go forth and spend my life for thee. If it be thy will, let me proceed in it. If not, then revoke my intentions. All I want in life is such circumstances as may best enable me to serve thee in the world. To this end, I leave all my concerns in thy hand, but let, not, let me not be discouraged. For this hinders my spiritual fervency. Enable me to undertake some task for thee, for this refreshes and animates my soul, so that I could endure all hardships and labors and willingly suffer for thy name. But oh, what a death it is to strive and labor, to be always in a hurry and yet do nothing. Alas, time flies, and I am of little use. Oh, that I could be a flame, a fire in thy service, always burning out in one continual blaze. Fit me for singular usefulness in this world. Fit me to exult in distresses of every kind, if they, if they but promote the advancement of thy kingdom. Fit me to quit all hopes of the world's friendship and give me a deeper sense of my sinfulness. Fit me to accept as just desert from thee any trial that may befall me. Fit me to totally resign to the denial of pleasures that I desire and to be content to spend my time with thee. Fit me to pray with a sense of joy, of divine communion, to find all times happy seasons to my soul, to see my own nothingness, and wonder that I am allowed to serve thee. Fit me to enter the blessed world where no unclean thing is, and to know thee with me always. Fun fact, like, uh, I never turn on my audio recording software. No. <laughs> you always mention it, and you didn't mention it. <laughs> I totally did. Oh no! Well, I'm recording now. Start now, and we'll, your audio quality will magically <laughs> improve after the prayer. All right. Amazing. Hold on. Brutal. See, that's what happens, Blake. You didn't remind me. Man, that prayer is so good, and I am, uh, I'm feeling that today. Wow, yeah, that conviction. Yep, was that uh, today? Oh, what a death it is to strive and labor, to be always in a hurry and yet do nothing. <laughs> and time flies, <laughs> and I am of little use, bro. Just, just destroy me while you're just absolutely brutal. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. the episode. I got nothing. I don't. How do we All follow? Right guys, that? Well, thanks for. <laughs> uh, I do know how to follow it actually, though, um, and it follows kind of nicely. Which is uh, this week we're going to read from the Heidelberg Catechism again, which we did a couple months ago. Um, taking a little break from Romans, taking a little break from ecclesiology, and getting into Lord's Day two here with question number three in the Heidelberg Catechism. And this question is pretty straightforward, so we'll start here and see where we go. Uh, question three reads, Whence knowest thou thy misery? Answer, out of the law of God. And the scripture reference there is Romans chapter 3, verse 20, which says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Um, yeah. So we'll just we'll just start while while we're already flattened out and feeling conviction. Let's just go there. Where how do we know as Christians, as people that have been saved by Christ, how do we know our misery? We know our miserable state 
by the law. And, and you and Eric had a really great yeah. conversation about this uh, in episode 35 about the- theonomy, but um, I wonder if you can cycle into that. Like what, what is the catechism getting at here in speaking about misery in relation to the law, especially from those sure. of us who are, who are reformed and we like the, the, the two tables of the law and we, we think the moral law is binding, right? Um, what does that, yeah. what does that look like and what are they getting at here? Well, there's a lot of things to consider, obviously, in this particular case, and it's something that is drastically underrepresented in the modern church. Um, we focus entirely on the gospel with no representation of the law in the church whatsoever. Um, but the law has a purpose, right? The law in and of itself does what? Well, it is a perfect representation of the character of God. Who is God? How do we know who God is? Well, let's look at his law. What does the law say about who he is? And what he expects of us. And if we are to be like Christ, right, we must be submissive to the law perfectly. But of course, we can't do that because of our depravity. So what is the, what is the purpose of the law then in that case, right? If the law says this is how you must be in order to be righteous, but we can't be, what's the purpose for us, right? What's the purpose for you and I today? In this case, well, it's rather simple. I mean, the law points to us, right? Our depravity. It's through the law that we know that we're sinners, right? This is exactly what Romans says, Romans 3.20, right? It's through the law comes our knowledge of our sin. We can't even begin to consider our need for the gospel if we don't first know why we need the gospel. And how, how do we know, how do we know what what we need the gospel for? Well, through the law of God, right? So we have this God who created all of us, made all creation out of the breath of his mouth. And he says, this is what I expect of you. And we can't do it. So the law was given to what? To, I, I believe it was MacArthur who said the law was given to crush us. Mm. You ought to be absolutely crushed under the weight of the law because you cannot keep it. And so... It's because of the law that we understand the sweetness of the gospel. We can truly appreciate our salvation and know the love of Christ because we know what is expected of us because of the law. So what do you think? No, I think, I mean, you, you hit it there, right? <laughs> because what, what is not happening here is saying, oh, well, therefore we need to um, implement a theonomic state what's mm-hmm. saying mm-hmm. is this is the mirror of the standard it is the revelation by god of our weakness and our frailty and our need for a savior i saw a post mm-hmm. um I forget who it was from and it resonated with me pretty deeply and he said uh, roughly along the lines of i really don't like this use of the word brokenness talking about sin because yes, that is that a true aspect of sin? Yes, uh, you know we're we're in a fallen world. There is brokenness in that. However, sin itself isn't brokenness that needs to be mended or uh, something that we just need to you know wrap our arm up by ourselves. Um, we don't need the self help medication. We need a savior, and right. sin is deadly, and the law reveals that to us and shows us just how wicked we actually are because the, the the closer we hold ourselves to the law 
uh, the, the closer we hold it up, the more unrighteousness we discover. We can turn to Romans 7 to kind of continue kind of continue the conversation about the law, right? Paul says, regarding the law and sin, what then should we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Hmm. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, thou you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And apart from the law, sin lies ahead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died, and the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. <laughs> so this law, right, we, we, we thought we were alive, you know, in, in, our, in our ignorance, we didn't know our sin, but the law comes and shows us our sin, and it puts us to death. We're all going to be judged by the law of God ultimately, right? Uh, when you die and you come face to face with the king, there's going to be a judgment. The judge is going to judge and you're going to be compared to the law. Now you're either going to have your own righteousness, which is going to be useless, mm. or you're going to have Christ's righteousness, which is perfect, but it's going to be according to the law of God, right? He says, and I died at the very commandment that promised uh, the promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. It's because of the law that we recognize our sin and the sin is made apparent to us in the law. And we recognize that then therefore the sin has killed us. Mm. We have been killed based on the law that promises to give us life. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but then the lawgiver comes Come on. and gives us his righteousness. Come on. And therefore, we're not judged by our own righteousness, but on the perfect work of Christ on the cross, who bared the weight of all of the wrath of God, effective for us. <laughs> mm. Mm. Uh, it is, it is, I mean, it's the gospel. Yeah. The law leads to the gospel, inevitably. It must. Uh, he continues, did what is good then bring death to me? Again, he says, by no means. I love how often Paul says, how dare you? <laughs> right? How dare you yeah. question? How dare you question God's law and God's character? Uh, it was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin <laughs> and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And then he continues on talk about the inner conflict, uh, uh, you know, the flesh and the spirit and so on. But, um, but what a tremendous gift the law is, right? I mean, God gives us undeservingly his law to point to us our depravity so that we may know his grace. Hmm. Tremendous gift. Come on. I also have a comment here um, from... Sinus's commentary on his catechism on the Heidelberg here. And he talks about in this specific question, why is he choosing the verbiage he's choosing? Because it's a short question and a short answer, but there's a couple things at play. And I think it, this is useful to get a, a grip of what is he intending to communicate through the way that he's framing these question and answers in this catechism for Christian believers to use to study doctrine. 
He says the term misery is more comprehensive in its signification than that of sin, for it embraces the evil both of guilt and punishment. The evil of guilt is all sin. The evil of punishment is all affliction, torment, and destruction of our rational nature, as well as all subsequent sins also by which those are punished that go before. As the numbering of the children of Israel, for instance, by David was a sin, and at the same time the punishment of a preceding sin, that of adultery and murder, with which he was chargeable, so that it included the evil of both guilt and punishment. The misery of man, therefore, is his wretched condition since the fall, consisting of these two great evils. First, that human nature is depraved, sinful, and alienated from God. And secondly, that on account of this depravity, mankind are exposed to eternal condemnation and deserve to be rejected of God. But I think that's really beautiful, right? Because mm-hmm. um, right, we have, what is your only comfort? And then, where do you know your misery from? Comfort and misery are very strong words that communicate richly and help us to wrap our minds, as he's showing us here, around multiple facets of doctrine. That doctrine isn't a one-dimensional, like board game where you're just putting all the squares together it's it's multifaceted it's complex and truth is communicating to us a very rich thing that affects other Mm -hmm. aspects of what we believe um which i think is pretty pretty amazing yeah yeah no i agree um i I actually i kind of want to continue just a little bit further down through Romans seven my man this is the way because uh, it leads to some interesting conversation uh, he says for we know that the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh sold into slavery under sin I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing that I hate right this is a verse that is often talked about saying you know Paul Paul's a Christian but he still sins blah 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 and he's fighting against his sin we, we my dad and I kind of talked about this uh, as he was working working through this passage, and I think in light of the context, it doesn't necessarily mean that, right? He's talking to Christians, right? And he's saying, look, you're still judging yourself by the law, right? You're doing the thing that you hate based on the law, right? He says, but now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, of course, there's still the inner conflict of sin, right? Flesh versus spirit. Um, says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that it is in my flesh. I, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do what I want, the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So he does describe the battle between the flesh and the spirit, right? That sin dwells in us. Which, by the way, uh, gets rid of any sort of possibility of uh, Mr. Wesley's uh, sinless perfectionism, right? Even perfection of yeah. intent, yeah. right? Um, this idea that we could even intend to do all that is good all the time. Um, but we're no longer under the law. Hmm. It's there for a purpose, but we're no longer under the weight of it in Christ. Um, that's tremendously important and that's tremendously freeing. Right. If we're in Christ and we know we're no longer under the weight of the law because of grace, we are then free to battle against the sin and battle against our flesh and to do so victoriously. 
don't know. That's good. It's good. I was <laughs> just going to say, though, uh, we did say that this wasn't going to be a Romans episode, but... Uh, yeah, <laughs> it happened. You know, <laughs> here we are. Paul Paul sneaks his way onto our episode uh, yet again. Shocker. <laughs> Calvinist podcast uh, references Romans. Um, now let's uh, let's continue on through the catechism here into the next mm-hmm. section because the, the, these questions here are kind of interrelated. So question four, what does the law of God require of us? And the answer in brief, and obviously there's the whole law, there's the, you know, specifically the 10 commandments. We could get into all that, but what is your sinus right here in the, in the Heidelberg catechism? He says, Christ teaches us that briefly Matthew 22, 37 through 40, thou shalt love the Lord, thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. And we talk about, you know, Reformed people speak of the two tables of the law. And this is one of those sections where we'll refer to that, uh, at least as far as I am aware, right? That uh, we have love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that really Mm -hmm. encompasses the first four commandments in the Ten Commandments. And then the last six are really encompassed in love your neighbor as yourself. Everything falls under that. And he's got a couple uh, references here. Deuteronomy 6, 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Leviticus nineteen eighteen, thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. And then he's got references from um, Mark and Luke that are echoing this same sentiment. But as we talk about uh, you know, I mean, we just laid it out there, the two tables of the law. Um, how do you see that playing out in scripture? Because Jesus teaches here, right, um, that the whole law and the prophets hang on these two, these two commandments. Uh, we could even say these two principal commandments, if you will, upon which everything else is subservient. And, and at first, when I first heard about this, I know that I kind of was like, eh, are we just like trying to make theological neatness, but the, the further I've, I've studied it and thought about it, uh, the more I think it makes a lot of sense of the Old Testament law of prophets, and especially when we're talking about the Ten Commandments and uh, the idea that Reformed people hold of the perpetuity of the moral law. Yeah, so ultimately, right, what does, what does our understanding of anything come out of? comes out of our heart, right? If our understanding of of who God is, obviously there's head knowledge there, but it's also our heart knowledge, right? The demons know who God is. They have head knowledge. They tremble, right? But our heart knowledge, right? So all of the rest of the law, the prophets, all of it must hang on what, right? It's all built upon something. It's all built upon on on what, Hmm. right? On, On God's moral character on who he is, right? And so our love for him coming chiefly first, right? As our heart is conformed to his, the moral law that he's laid out to us, right? As, as our character is more conformed like him, we're going to indefinitely, we're, we're, we're inevitably going to begin to, to transform from the inside out and be like him, which, okay, well, how do we do that? Well, he's given us law, 
but he's given us moral law. He's given us other laws. There's tons of laws in scripture, yeah. right? There's civil laws, right? But are those things that we continue today, right? That That's where the whole theonomy discussion comes from. Yeah. This idea that, well, what do we do with the other laws? What do we do with ceremonial laws? What do we do with civil laws? Um, what, what Are those binding on us or no, mm. right? Which again, inevitably turns into a conversation on covenant theology and all these other things. Sure. But, but it doesn't matter what camp you fall in. You, 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 you must, and you must submit to the fact that the moral law is, is chief among them mm. because all of the rest of the laws are built on the moral law. They're built on God's character. They're built, they're built on who he is. So yeah, I mean, yeah, of course they hang on those things. <laughs> they must. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> what, what are we judging? What are we judging them by? I've got some insights here from uh, the uh, Westminster Catechism relating to the moral law specifically. So we're going to shift gears here briefly from the Heidelberg. I'm not going to dwell on these as much, but I want to read them to get a little bit of context mm-hmm. um, as we're throwing around these terms. And I think these are helpful concepts as we're looking at law and gospel. Like We, we have to have these things straight in our minds. And I think the catechisms, confessions help us to have a faithful exposition of scripture that helps us to understand what the Bible is teaching from Genesis to Revelation. So question 91 of the Westminster Larger Catechism reads, what is the duty which God requireth of man? Answer, the duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. 92, what did God at first reveal unto man as the rule of his obedience? Answer, the rule of obedience revealed to Adam in the estate of innocence and to all mankind in him besides a special command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, was the moral law. Question 93, what is the moral law? I love the way these just build on each other. The answer to that is the moral law is the declaration of the will of God to mankind, directing and binding everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience thereunto. Which is a lot of words, but basically everybody in all times and all places uh, has to keep the law fully and completely uh, in the frame and disposition of the whole man, soul, and body, and in the performance of all duties of holiness and righteousness, which he oweth to God and man, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it. Right. And question 94, I'll just hit here real quick. Is there any use of the moral law to man since the fall? kind of where we're at where we're at here right answer although no man since the fall can attain to the righteousness to righteousness and life by the moral law we affirm that we're not sinless perfectionists here yet there is great use thereof as well common to all men as peculiar either to the unregenerate or to the regenerate so yes the moral law is extremely useful i mean we, we see this in society right people generally across the board, across cultures, across times, understand that murder is wrong, that rape is wrong, that adultery is wrong, even in societies that reject marriage as an institution. They still see something wrong about somebody violating a covenantal relationship that they have entered into, whether they would use that language, right? They'd probably say a contract, but they recognize that there is something wrong in that there's something in nature that testifies to the truth of God's moral law. And this is from people that are totally agnostic or atheist or atheistic and, and reject God 
uh, in, in word and thought and deed, and yet the moral law, they can't escape it. Yeah. The law is written on our hearts, right? We know who God is, and the law is written on our hearts. And sin, I mean, even as defined by the catechisms, is what? It's any want or conformity unto or transgression of what? The law of God, right? To even understand sin, we must understand the law, and it's written on our hearts, and that's why we have this conscience, right? God has given us a conscience, and of course it's depraved, and so in our depravity, we we come up with all kinds of wrong ideas of what is right and wrong, but inherently everybody still has some something that they deem right or wrong, and that's because it's inevitable. We are created in the image of God, and the law is written on our hearts, um, and so therefore, <laughs> well, this is what happens, right? And continuing that conversation about the moral law and the use relative to us as believers, right? We can see that there's usage in condemning sin, but then what does that look like for us practically? And I think the Westminster Confession, or, or sorry, the Westminster Catechism, rather, uh, question 97 gives us a very direct address here, right? What is What special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? Answer, although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works— so as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned. Yet besides the general uses thereof common to them with all men, it is of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good. And this phrase here is so good, right? And thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as a rule of their obedience. And, and there it is, right? The beginning of this question and answer from the catechism tells us you're not justified by the law. You're not condemned by it anymore because you're in Christ, but you are not justified by it. And so there's nothing you can do to add to that justification or take away from it. It is, it is bought by the blood of the lamb. Yet, because of the law, and as we acquaint ourselves with God's perfect law, we grow an appreciation for Christ's fulfillment of it, his active obedience, as well as the passion of Christ, his passive obedience and suffering in the place of us to take the weight of the law, right? So we have the active and the passive obedience of Christ, the passion of the Christ. And then that provokes us in turn to thankfulness. And from that place of thankfulness to express our gratefulness to our Lord, not as a means of, of earning anything, but as, a, as an overflow of joy and thankfulness to him to be conforming ourselves to the law. And obviously the spirit works that in us in sanctification, but it's something our catechisms, our confessions, and our our reformed tradition, and I think scripture teaches us where to pursue that. Obviously the work is the spirits and, and, and it's a supernatural work and we can't muster ourselves up like by asceticism and you know in this season of of Lent and uh, all these people who apparently miss the thing about um <laughs> don't yeah. tell anyone when you're fasting. Uh, <laughs> okay, guys, let's join in our giant uh, group fast where we're going to post it on Facebook every day and 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 put a literal <laughs> mark of our fasting on our like. Lint. Anyways, but in in the midst of that, right? We're, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about trying to 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 add to the law. We're saying, look, in this joy of obedience to Christ, there's overflow, and let us pursue that. Let us pursue, as it says, greater care to conform themselves unto the rule. Uh, uh, thereunto as the rule of their obedience, right? So the question isn't, oh, God, I'm under condemnation, and how can I be delivered? It's no, Christ has paid the penalty. God, how can I be 
conform to the image of Christ by being transformed by the renewing of our mind, by saturating mm-hmm. our minds in scripture, by submitting uh, and being a, a part of a local church, back to our ecclesiology series that's ongoing, by sitting under good preaching, by hearing the law and the gospel presented week after week, by partaking of the ordinary means of grace. I, you know, mm-hmm. It keeps coming back to this for me, but it's so big, right? Because so many Christians, myself included for a long time, would say, well, oh, why, why do I feel like I'm so disconnected from God and I feel all this? And it's like, well, I'm not regular reading or praying. But even if I was doing those things, I wasn't involved in a church and I wasn't sitting under good preaching and I wasn't having the law and the gospel proclaimed week after week after week. And I wasn't sitting under the sacraments and the ordinary means of grace, the things where God has promised, I will meet my people here. Um, so again, this is all, I, I think that line there to provoke them to more thankfulness and the expression of that thankfulness is greater care to conform unto the law as our rule of obedience. So it's good stuff. It's solid stuff, dude. It's so it. good. I love it. But you guys so are just a bunch of legalists. Yeah. What does the law require of us, Blake? Oh, we just we just we just read it, and I definitely don't have it memorized. Yeah. Why not? And I know that that's the other crazy thing is these catechisms are designed to be memorized, and I I feel question so bad five y'all. Question five: Can you live up to all of this perfectly? Of course we can. <laughs> Not. <laughs> the answer is, of course, no. Mm. I have a natural tendency to hate God mm. and my neighbor. Mm. Oh, brutal. And just like that, everyone was wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a ton of scripture here that, that it refers to. Yeah. Um, which we'll, we'll look to. We have obviously Romans 3, um, 1 John. Genesis, <laughs> Jeremiah, Romans, Ephesians, Titus. Where do we want to dive in, Blake? How about we just we take to... them in order? Okay. Sounds good. Romans 3, 9 through 20 uh, is, is probably the most popularly used one uh, when speaking of total depravity, and that's what? That none is righteous, right? So, um, so it says, what then? Are we any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. Hmm. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. Looking at you, seeker-sensitive churches, there is no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. I, I think he's painting a pretty clear picture here. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. Their venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks of those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God for no human being will be justified in his sight by the deeds prescribed by the law for through the law comes knowledge of sin. So yeah, a man is basically good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the argument that the, that the, that the humanists give regularly. And honestly, without even looking at this, it it doesn't take much of a, a a look at uh, any human society ever uh, to know that this is, not true. 
Um, of course, of course, no yeah. one is good. No one is good. Uh, it continues in First John. If you want to take First John. Oh yeah, I just didn't want to miss uh, Romans three twenty three. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There that, it is. That, that's an absolute statement, my friends. That's not saying most have sinned or a lot have sinned or those really bad people over there have sinned or even I have sinned. It's all, all, everybody, you know, and there's no like modifier here to, to qualify that and to say, you know, all kinds of like, it, it's pretty, it's pretty blatant. Um, but yeah, yep. moving on to first John, uh, we're going to hit up verse eight. Um, I had it on reformstandards.com and now I'm pulling it up, uh, in, in Lagos. So first John chapter one, verses eight through 10. And this tells us if we say we have no sin, we're right and it's all great and it's awesome (laughs) no get out of here prosperity here we go uh if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us i don't want to hear about your truth my truth the truth capital t absolute reality uh the truth is not in us and we are lying not only to other people but to ourselves if we say we don't sin so sorry sinless perfectionists if we confess our, but, but here's the hope, right? There's, there's law. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in it. It's not in us. And then there's gospel. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then verse 10, law again, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar mm-hmm. and his word is not in us. So notice that mm-hmm. escalation, right? Uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Then verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, now it's not just we deceive ourselves. We are saying God is a liar. And we are proving not only is the truth not in us, capital T, but now the truth is also, unsurprisingly, right? His word, his word, the truth is not in us. And we deceive ourselves and we're calling God a liar if we say we don't sin. That's, that's a lot. I don't, I don't know about you. I don't feel comfortable with all of that sitting on my shoulders. <laughs> I'd rather just say, yep, I'm a sinner. You know? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's that's heavy, man. John does not pull punches. And even though his, his vocabulary in Greek is not particularly large as compared to some of the other New Testament authors, he uses it so well. And the repetition is yeah. super effective there. Just as you're looking there, right? He's got these, if we say this, but we do this, then we don't practice the truth. If we say this, but we do that, right? Everything's in this very punchy form. And I, oh, it's so good, man. And then uh, what's what's those next couple in there? It, I see it jumps all over the board. So let's let's get it. Yeah, Genesis 6. That's uh, what I'm seeing next year, Genesis 6. Uh, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually justin people are basically good and all those people you know i'm sure they just have some uh reason why they're why they're bad like that and you know what, what happened to yeah. them we need to understand now that serial to be killer. fair i've heard this argument oh well this is before god flooded the earth and this these were different people well yes but also no <laughs> 
this yeah. is not this is not pre this is not um we, we don't judge mankind based on pre-flood post-flood it's pre-fall post-fall mm. right adam was the only man who was upright come on all men all men inherit sin nature from our federal head adam by nature all men are wicked and all of our intentions are evil continually. Mm. There is no getting around that. Now, yeah. Anyway, mm. it continues. Let's see what else we got here. We have got Romans Jeremiah. 8. Here, let me get Romans 8. Romans 8, 8 uh, verse 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So not only is, like Paul, Paul pulls zero punches here. Not only does he say that our, our fallen mind is against God, it's enmity against God because it's not subject to, to God's law and it cannot be because until we are made alive by the spirit through the preaching of the word, we cannot please God. We cannot serve him. We cannot, like not only are we not subject to the law, we can't really subject ourselves to the law because yeah. we are at enmity with God. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm. Um, which, do we know why? Well, because of what Jeremiah 17 oh. says. <laughs> which is continuing. Bro. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Mm. Right? I love... I love the quote, the Calvin quote, hey the human heart is a what? A factory of <laughs> idols. Yeah. A freaking factory of idols, y'all. <laughs> Just churn yeah. them out. Right. So when people say, follow your heart, I want to throw up. No, yeah. don't follow your heart. Do the opposite of that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> okay, heart, what's it going to be today? Sin. Sin. Yay! I mean, <laughs> it's ridiculous. No, don't follow your heart. It's desperately, desperately deceitful. You know, I, and this is this is not to be overly harsh, but we're we're the the kid gloves are off. You know, we're here. Uh, you know, the kind of people that follow their heart in this in in a biblical sense: uh, adulterers, rapists, murderers, and all of the manner of sin and all. You know that laundry list in in Corinthians that says these will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a great list of people that followed their heart. You know, take take adultery as that particular sin, right? Instead of saying, hmm, I made a commitment before God and this other person that I'm going to be married to this person and I'm going to honor them and I'm going to prefer them above, you know, and, and forsake all others. And the adulterer says, well, but I, I just don't love them the same way, but I really love this person over here, or I really want this thing over here. And instead of saying, you know, yeah, my de- my my desires are misplaced, and my heart is trying to lead me down a path of death and destruction. Is what the Proverbs tells us. Yeah, um, but instead of doing listen, that, they follow their heart. Yeah, yeah. And, but but what does what does Paul say in Ephesians? Come on, right? And on. you were dead in the trespasses and sins Preach. in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we. All once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were 
by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Come on. But, but God, I'm going to stop there. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, not sick, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, seats, seats us it, with him in the heavenly places, right? This already, not yet. Come on. <laughs> we are in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We're just not there yet. We haven't arrived so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. <laughs> That's it. Although there's also this little note in Titus, Titus 3.3, 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Bro. That's it. For grace, you've been saved through faith. That's it, man. And it is not as of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship That's it, created man. in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared mm. beforehand that we should walk in them. Come on. Man, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. And like, obviously we're being a little, a little hyped up, but how, how do you read these passages and this catechism question and not get hyped up? Yeah. Like, yeah, this should spurn us on. This is, this is what encourages us. To endure. Mm-hmm. This is how we we persevere. Because my, if if it's me and myself, right? I was praying with a couple of the guys from my church today on our lunch breaks, and all of us echoed very similar struggles that manifest differently, but the same kinds of things. And we're all seeking and recognizing, what, you know, we're not doing a good job of conformity to the law, and and we're struggling. And we don't know how to love our, our wives like Christ loved the church. And we have to learn that by submitting mm-hmm. ourselves to the teaching of the word, by confessing our sins to one another, and by trusting in the one who we're imitating, right? Amen. How do yeah. you imitate one who you don't know? How do you know if you haven't heard, right? And, I, and I'm paraphrasing from Romans intentionally here, right? And that's a specific use case, but take that, take that out of the context of marriage and take it everywhere, right? How do we follow him if we're not seeking him and if we're not hearing him. And again, I'm not speaking about the seeker sensitive of like, I'm not talking about the unregenerate person who's dead in sin. I'm talking about someone who's been made alive to Christ, who feels the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who desires Christ. And the devil's going to try to steal that from you. He's going to try to steal your joy and comfort as a Christian. He's going to try to steal the comfort you find in Christ. I'm not talking about your physical comfort. I'm talking about our spiritual rest, our only comfort, right? He's trying to steal that comfort, that eternal comfort from us. 
And we're weak. We can't resist the devil in our own strength. But Christ, when he was hungry and thirsty and alone <laughs> in the middle of the desert, he resisted Satan, right? And, and you know, I'm not giving yeah. us a sermon here and saying, well, you can, here's how you fight the devil. Um, but I am saying, look, Christ defeated Satan. So rebuke yes. him and he will flee, not in your own strength. Not in, otherwise, you're going to get the, uh, the demons that chased out the seven exorcists who said, I know, I know <laughs> Jesus and I know Paul. Who are you? Um, not in our strength, but we rest in Christ's finished work. That, and that's really one of the beauties for me of Reformed theology and, and a joy that uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to be starting into Christology. And one of the mm. one of the greatest joys for me in in Reformed theology, and I spoke to the Patreons a little bit about it uh, in, in a separate section here, is this high Christology and recognizing everything hinges there, and truly living that out. And I think the Puritans give us a great framework for that. The Confessions and the Catechisms help us both the the, the London Baptist, um, the Westminsterian, and the the Continental Dutch Reformed. The Belgic, uh, the Westminster, the 1689, Keech's Catechism, um, the Westminster Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, these documents are exposition of Scripture to help us ultimately to know Christ and to humble ourselves and to say, okay, yeah, teach me, Lord. Help my unbelief, to quote the apostle, right? Help my unbelief because I'm weak. So that that's where I want to leave it, uh, Justin. Unless you have any closing thoughts before we uh, we wrap up here. No, listen. It can be easy sometimes to, especially especially as Christians, right? Especially as Reformed Christians who who recognize the weight of our sin, right? Who who recognize our depravity. You can read some of the works written by theologians that really can make you feel down about how evil and wicked we truly are. But it's because right. of our wickedness that the gospel is sweet. It's because of the law that we can see that. So praise God for the law. Praise God for his goodness that he would give us the law so that he could point out our sin so that we may know grace and that through grace we would be saved. Not through the law, not through our obedience to the law, Christ's obedience, yes, but not through our own works. And, um, yeah, guys, that's, that's it. That's, that's it. it. Thank God for the law and, and recognize your sin and yeah. praise God for his mercy. It's like that, uh, RC, I think it's RC Sproul. Like, yeah, we're saved by, or maybe uh, it might've been MacArthur. I don't remember. It's one <laughs> yeah, of We're them. saved by works. <laughs> we're saved by works. The works of Christ. <laughs> oh no, that was the wrong oh, no. sound. No, wrong <laughs> no. Hold on. The works of Christ. <laughs> Close call there. Anyway, Justin, uh, if people are looking for a community to discuss the podcast, the, the topics that we're wrestling with in this podcast, if they want to ask for book and whiskey recommendations and, and share some dad jokes, uh, where can they go? Y'all, listen, I know you're on Facebook. You know you're on Facebook. Heck, even your grandmother's on Facebook. It's true. Listen, join us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Distilling Theology. We have a page that you can like for updates. But really, there's a group that you can join, a family, if you will, of sage, stage, reformed brothers and sisters who are there to learn and grow and be sanctified and be edified and to share memes and jokes and to enjoy one another's company as we 
sip distilled spirits and talk about God to his glory. So please join us on Facebook. And also, you can check us out on Instagram, at Distilling Theology. It's a great place. It's very aesthetic, if you will. <laughs> not aesthetic, though. We're not, uh, we're not monastic no, aesthetics no, 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 here, no, no, but no. aesthetic. Uh, the T is not silent. Aesthetic with a lisp. And uh, <laughs> it's very beautiful. It's, it's pleasing to your eyeballs. It is. Uh, so check that out. Um, also, uh, we do have a Twitter um, that's occasionally... Uh, and I say that uh, very intentionally, very occasionally used. Um, but you can follow us there at Distilling Tea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we're on the we're on the social media. You can just, honestly, you can get links to all of it at uh, DistillingTheology.com, um, where you can also check out our our store. Just oh, saying, shoot. So, DistillingTheology.com. Check it out. There's some sweet merch up in there, guys. I'm just saying. There is, and there's more coming. Which I'm pretty yes, excited there is about. indeed. Now, Blake, where else can people join the inner circle, as it were? Our our closest family members, the ones who are in our distilling theology household. Well, I see where you were going, but I had the music queued up for this. So join <laughs> us at the Society of Reformed Podcasters, our friends and our family, uh, the network <laughs> of doctrinally sound podcasts from a reformed perspective, including Five Points Church Planting Podcast, Assurance of Pardon, Baptist Broadcast, Bobcast, Distilling Theology, Fast God Stuff, Box Den, Grace and Peace Radio, got myself on the notes there, The Particular Baptist Podcast, The Reformed Brotherhood, Reformed Pilgrims, Restless, Small Town Theologian, and Steady Anchor. You can get that entire mega feed and get the back catalog of all those shows, which is I don't know how many thousands of hours of content, but it, it, it's a lot. Go to Reform yeah. Podcasts. The S is not silent uh, to get all those. ReformPodcasts.com. You're going to want to subscribe to that mega feed. Check out those other shows. There's a lot of great content. There's a few shows that boldly are doing the one-man band, uh, a lot of two-man shows like this, and a couple that are that are bigger and more guest-driven, uh, lots of different formats. It's a lot of fun. And to what Justin was setting me up for that I just completely dropped the ball. If you want to join our inner sanctum, you can join us on Patreon. Starting at $4.99 per month, you'll get access to early release episodes. And sometimes they're they're very early, depending on how uh, life and, and things are going. Uh, some episodes were as much as six months ahead of the regular schedule. <laughs> Not intentionally, but you know what? Sometimes... It'd be like that, as the kids are saying these days. Uh, you'll also get extended conversations. If you enjoy what we're talking about and you wish you heard more of it, you're going to want to head it up. You'll also get discounts on the aforementioned shopdistillingtheology.com. And if you join us at $14.99 per month, after your first three months, you'll get an exclusive Patreon mug to show our thanks to you for your support, as well as a little bit of extra content. And we're looking to add another level that's going to be pretty amazing if it comes out I'm, I'm waiting to hear back i'm waiting to get the uh the pieces in place so stay tuned but uh i, I think you're gonna be pretty excited about it so um you know it'd be like that and guys whatever you do whether you eat or drink do all to the glory of god solely Dale glory glory